God's grace to each of you, and I hope that you do have a uh, thoughtful and wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Well, we have this Sunday in Romans 8, and in two weeks we conclude Romans 8, and uh, I am uh, delighted to tell you that next Sunday we are going to be blessed to have Dr. Erwin Lutzer preaching here. Uh, at Bethel, and so if you don't know who he is, Dr. Lutzer was longtime pastor at uh, Moody Church, downtown Chicago, big radio ministry around the country, and uh, is a wonderful example to me of a pastor, teacher, who served in one church for a very long time. And uh, he's a personal friend, and I would encourage you to be here next week and uh, to be blessed in, in uh, hearing from him. Well, the Apostle Paul now is bringing together all of these threads that he has been writing, teaching here in Romans 8. He is bringing them all together in this last portion of Romans 8. What does he say in his conclusion? Well, realize that he could have gone any number of directions uh, because these truths could go any number of wonderful directions. But we see here at the end of Romans 8 the Apostle Paul's pastoral heart coming through because the direction that he wraps all of this together is in the areas that we need it the most. Assurance, confidence, security in God's purpose to save us to the uttermost, to save us forever. And so today we are in the, we're in the final stretch, two Sundays uh, here in Romans 8, and uh, it's just a blessing to be able to, uh, to teach it to you today. In a sense, I just don't want to blow it because it is such, it's like the best little portions in all of the Bible. And uh, so I want to read the whole section, and we're going to focus today on verses 33 and 34. But here's the entire section here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Pastor Steve, don't blow it. Okay, I'm going to try not to blow it. So the pinnacle of all of this is that last section there, which we will look at in two weeks. All that God has done, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And the answer is nothing and nobody can. That's the pinnacle. That's the Mount Everest step. The verses that we have today are the step right before that, okay? The step that leads to that pinnacle step. And again, he continues doing what he's been doing here. He continues to ask questions, like rhetorical questions. Sometimes he answers them, sometimes he doesn't. 
But notice in verse 35, he asks, what can separate us from God's love? But then in verses 33 and 34, he says, what can separate us from Christ's saving work? So the one leads to the other. If we can't be separated from Christ's saving work in our life, well, then guess what? We can't be separated from God's love in our life. What can separate us from our justification? What can separate us from our freedom from guilt? And his answer to this is to grasp who it is that declares us righteous and who accomplished it for us in the first place. So let's begin in verse 33. Here's what he's saying. If God declares us righteous, who can declare us unrighteous? Here's how Paul says it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Now, most of my adult life, I have, in my personal reading, I have read through the English Standard Version and the NIV Version. And in both of these, whenever I've read Romans 8, it's always like I kind of hit like a speed bump in this verse. Like I read it and it's like something here just doesn't quite make sense to me. I know it's wonderful, but I, I don't know exactly what it means. Because it's odd to me when it seems like it is saying who, the answer to who is it that condemns us. And the answer, because the next thing he says is Christ Jesus in verse 34. But that seems odd to me. Now, if you read it that way, it would mean this. Uh, that who, who, is, who is to uh, condemn us? God has declared us righteous. Uh, and so, therefore, who can, who can condemn us if God has, hasn't done it? The only other possibility would be Jesus. But, oh, wait, Jesus died for our sins, so he's not going to condemn us either. Now, we might get to heaven and find out that that's actually what it meant to say. Okay? That could be right. But it seems to me that it's better to go with what the New American Standard Version, how they translate it. And if you have one of those in your hands, you'll notice that the answer to who is to condemn, it, it includes in the flow of verse 33, uh, the, the, the who is to condemn us. So in other words, we could read it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who can condemn us? That seems more natural to me. So in that way, let us define the terms before we find out what all of this means. So who shall bring any notice? Charge. Okay, charge. Legal term. Okay, legal term. Somebody can be arrested, for example, and they will say there are charges pending against them. Or he or she has been charged with such and such a crime. And in our legal uh, world here... That means that they have not yet been found guilty of that. They have been accused of that, legally accused of doing something. Well, with God, friends, there are no discoveries. There's no investigation because God knows the beginning from the end. He knows everything. He doesn't have to discover who did what. He knows all of it. And he sees it through the lens of perfect justice. Okay, So this isn't what we call false charges or trumped-up charges what this is talking about are real, actual, moral charges that stick to us. So we could say it this way. Who shall bring any moral charge that sticks against God's elect? Now let's talk about elect. Notice he calls God's people God's elect. And we already started talking about this term election. And Romans 9 is going to have a whole bunch more about election. And as we've already seen, election is... God for loving us. 
God for choosing us. God in eternity past beginning to think about you and me in a loving, loving and saving relationship. So elect is short for election, and in the Bible, it's just describing the redeemed of God, the family of God, the people of God, the children of God. Those that are under the grace of God are the elect of God. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who, what? Class, are you with me? It is God who justifies let's say it all together justifies why because there's that term we run into it in Romans all the time and we've spent a lot of time on it but just to remind you that the doctrine of justification is the glorious doctrine that Luther said is the hinge upon which the entire gospel turns that God the holy God declares sinners to be not sinners he declares the unrighteous to be righteous how could God do that this is where the cross of Jesus Christ is so critical because on the cross, Jesus takes our guilt. He takes the punishment that our sins deserved. And by doing that now, God is free in his perfect justice to declare Jesus guilty and us not guilty. To declare him unrighteous and declare us righteous. And to promise that he is going to look at us as if we were righteous forever in the past and righteous forever in the future. He will never ever, and this is the point, ever again bring up some charge against us. From now on, in my eyes, you are perfectly holy, and I'm going to treat you that way forever. That's what justification is saying. It is God who justifies. Now notice, it is God who justifies. It is God Almighty. If salvation was a human construct, then we would always be worried that our salvation, like the house built on sand, would collapse. But what we see here is salvation is from God, and that justification is God declaring us righteous. It's not me, your pastor, going, you know what, I think from now on you're going to be okay. This isn't your mama, it's not your daddy, it's not your grandpa, it's not the deacon in the church. It is God who declares us righteous, almighty God, saying, you are forever holy and therefore a recipient of eternal life. And so the point that Paul is making here is if God declares us righteous, who can overrule that? If God declares us righteous, who can say anything other than that? Now remember, Paul here is writing to the Roman church. And these people in Rome... Um, uh, we're living within the Roman Empire, and I mean, if you look back at the system that the Romans came up with for jurisprudence and law and all these things, it's an amazing thing that they were able to, uh, to accomplish because there was, throughout the entire Roman Empire, there were governors and judges and systems of rule and law that were very clearly spelled out, and uh, these Romans would have been very familiar with uh, what it means to be Roman and to live under a Roman judiciary. As a Roman citizen, one of the rights that a Roman citizen had was that they were allowed to appeal to Caesar, okay, to appeal to Caesar. 
Now, we're living in a day where citizenship, for example, in America is this highly debated thing. It wasn't so highly debated in the Roman Empire because there, there weren't that many people that were Roman citizens, relatively speaking. Just because you lived in the Roman Empire didn't mean that you were a citizen of Rome. It was a status, a higher level of status, that uh, there was basically two ways that you could be a Roman citizen. You could be born to a, 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 a man and woman who both were Roman citizens. They both had to be Roman citizens for you to be a Roman citizen. Or you could pay an enormous sum of money that the vast majority of people couldn't even touch. But you could buy your Roman citizenship. And this plays a huge part in Paul's own story. Because if you know the story of Acts, Paul is, is under arrest in, in, in Caesarea for two years. And King Festus comes into town, and they have this trial against Paul, and they are about to declare him, or they're wanting to declare him, uh, you know, guilty. And what Paul does as a Roman citizen, he was a, he was, this is one of the things that's unique about God's call, and the man Paul is that he called a Roman citizen, which gave him rights and privileges that most people didn't have. In that moment, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar, which he had the right to do. And why was that such a wonderful right? Because if there's some local, you know, uh, governor or judge or, you know, some sort of little kangaroo court that finds a Roman citizen guilty, it was the Roman citizen's right to say, listen, I appeal to the highest court. I appeal to the highest authority. There was nobody with more authority than the emperor of Rome, Caesar himself. And so if you know the story of Acts, the journey that he makes to Rome and the shipwrecks and all the different things are part and parcel of his appeal to Caesar. Why does that matter? Because if Caesar declares you not guilty, then it doesn't matter what any other court or any other person says. If Caesar says you're not guilty, there was no higher human authority than him. And that applies here now. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer to that is lots of people bring charges against God's people. Let me enumerate some of them. Let's begin with the big dog, Satan himself, who is called in the Bible the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Right now, somehow, in mystery, I don't know how this works, Satan is in heaven, somehow, speaking at least, and he is accusing the brothers, he's accusing God's people of what? of all manner of evil and sin and not being worthy of the grace and the love of God. Think of what he did for Job, for example. When he went in and he accused Job, he accused God, he slandered God in the Garden of Eden. He is a slanderer. He is an accuser. Is it possible that Satan has slandered your name personally to God? It's possible. Satan accuses God's people of all kinds of things. Does the accusation of the highest demon alter our status before God? No, it doesn't. As Lloyd-Jones says this, there is never the danger that Satan, with all his cleverness and wiliness, will be able to come forward one day and produce a clause that brings me under condemnation. God knows it all infinitely better than even Satan does. 
God knows all about the law in every detail, comma, jot, and tittle. So nothing and no one shall ever be able to bring this charge against God's elect. Think of that, friends. God knows your sin more than you know your sin. And he knows the law better than any of us know the law. And in spite of perfect knowledge of our depravity, he, de he declares us righteous anyway. So therefore, is there some hidden charge that I haven't told God about that maybe he's going to discover and go, oh, I didn't know you did that, so therefore to hell you go. No. Why? He knows it all. He knows it all. And yet he has declared us righteous. How about the law of God? Does the law of God accuse God's people? Yeah, every day. We break the law of God every day. In action or intent, the law condemns us. We sin, we are sinners by nature and by action. Do the accusations of the law stick against God's people? No. Why? Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. As a Christian now, I'm under a different jurisdiction. I'm, in a sense, under a different kind of law, a new law, the law of the spirit. And under that law, I'm free from condemnation. Hoping for an amen along the way here somewhere, I don't know. And the sinners said, how about our conscience? Does our conscience accuse us? Does our conscience declare us guilty? And I'm going to come back to this at the end because I think this is a huge problem, especially if you're a perfectionist or a legalist. Because our consciences will scream at us all the time that we are guilty. And there's a kind of that that's good. It reminds us of the way we should live. And when we violate the law, we, our conscience tweaks us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of conscience that says, God's not going to save somebody like you. The conscience that says, oh, you do that and you do it all the time. There's no way that you're going to end up in heaven. God can't save somebody like you. Oh, remember that thing you did in the past? I'm going to keep reminding you of that thing that you wonder if maybe it's going to be the thing that compromises you're getting into heaven. And our conscience just keeps beating us and beating us and accusing us and charging us. And the result of this is that we live like we're losing when by God's grace we're winning. At least in his eyes. What do we say to that? 1 John 3, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I'm going to come back to that one here at the end. So we got the law of God, we've got Satan, we've got our consciences. How about other people? Do other people bring accusations and charges against God's elect all the time? All the time. We can't escape it. If there's any resemblance of the Christian life, that we're living, there's going to be people that are going to say things, negatively, by the way, about us. Why? Well, maybe our beliefs are out of step with current societal trends. Maybe our lifestyle is at odds with the moral choices of the people around us. Maybe it's family members who know us and they see inconsistencies and they want to remind us, oh, you say that you're a Christian, do you? Well, I'm a family member. And let me just tell you a few things that I observe in your life. And rightly so, they point out inconsistencies and they accuse you and they charge you and they say, there's no way that there's anything to this Christian faith that you have. 
Condemnation from people sounds like this. You're a hypocrite. You're a bigot. You're holier than thou. You're a Bible thumper. Who are you to tell me what I should do or what's right and wrong, etc., etc., etc.? Any of those sound familiar? Something like that? All right. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer is lots and lots and lots of people can and will. Including humans, demons, laws, conscience. So what do we do when any of those are coming to bear upon us and we, are, we feel like we're losing, we feel like we're lost, we feel like, man, there's nothing to this. What do we do? Like Paul, we appeal to Caesar. We appeal to Caesar and we drag our conscience and the words of people and the accusations of Satan or whatever, we drag all of those before Caesar and we say, God, these people say that I am unrighteous. These people say that I'm not worthy of, the he- of, of heaven. What say ye, God? And to that God says, if I declare you righteous, who can declare you unrighteous? If God is for you, who can be against you? If God's judgment is that you are righteous forever, then it doesn't matter what anybody else, any lesser authority, which is everybody, what they say. Because God has declared us righteous. Who can say anything else? Who can say contrary? If God has declared you justified before God. And here we have the Bible's answer to those of us who worry about whether or not we are going to step into heaven and find out that maybe there was something along the way that disqualified me from the grace of God. Maybe there was something along the way that God missed somehow, and now at the very end, at the last moment, as I stand before God, oh, lo and behold, hell forever. What is the answer to that? It is God who justifies us. It is God who has declared us righteous. That will never happen to God's elect. And the answer is unequivocally, no, nobody. Not if God has declared us righteous. Let that just sit on your soul a second, Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you need to become a Christian. Because if God is against you, then nobody can be for you. But if God declares you righteous, then what other people say doesn't matter if you're righteous in the eyes of God. Are you righteous in the eyes of God today? If not, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Receive the gift that is salvation, full and free. And have that declaration be true for you forever. You can do that today. Verse 35. Sorry, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, what I have read might be the most succinct and most beautiful Christological statement in all of the Bible, telling us of all of the works that Jesus has done and is currently doing to secure our salvation. What a wonderful little verse it is. Maybe I'll read it again. I said it so quick, maybe you missed it. Listen, Christ Jesus is the one who died More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
I think it's important to realize that Paul here, pastorally, is wanting to assure and to bring comfort to God's people. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't do what is so popular today, which is to encourage people to look to their feelings, look to your experiences, how, how, how are you sensing things, what's going on internally. He doesn't do that. What does the Apostle Paul do? He drags our rear ends into the gospel. I didn't write it that way, but, and I regret saying it that way, but that's basically what he does. And there are people that are like, oh, down with doctrine. We don't want doctrine. Don't give us doctrine. We want, we want feelings. We want experiences. Paul would have nothing of that. He takes us back into the gospel of what Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Our security cannot be in our feelings. It cannot be in our experiences. It cannot be in that really awesome day 35 years ago at camp. <laughs> that is the basis for how I think I'm right with God. It is grounded in Jesus and his saving work on our behalf. So notice how he does this. He starts with that messianic title, Christ, Christ Jesus, who? What a great description. Died, his cross, raised, resurrection, right hand, ascension, high priest, interceding for us. I can't describe it any better than that. What do we need to know today? That Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended to heaven 40 days later, and he is at the right hand of God interceding for us right now. I got nothing better than that to say, right? That's as good as it gets. But I got, I got stuff to say anyway, uh, and I'm going to keep going. So notice the tenses of the verbs here, friends. Okay, two are in the past tense, two are in the present. He died and was raised again. That's past tense. Present tense, he is, is seated at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. So we have he did, he did, he is, he is. For the sake of our time, I want to focus on the last two. Notice these ongoing assurances. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God. What is this talking about? This is describing the present today heavenly glory and honor and authority that is Jesus. He is at God's right hand. Notice it's right hand, it's not left hand. Why? Because right hand is a symbol of, of status. It, he, is, he is right there with God. He's not at the left hand, he's not at the left foot, he's not at the right foot, he's at the right hand of God. Now God doesn't have a hand, so this is an anthropomorphism where we are being, it's allowing us to understand his place in heaven, his glory in heaven. How is this assuring to us? Simply this, the person who died for us, the one that was raised for our justification, is now at the highest possible place in the physical and spiritual universe. There is no higher place than the right hand of Almighty God. Who's the most important person you know? Okay, take a moment. The most important person that you know. On the count of three, let's all say our person. You ready? One, two, three. 
Oh, you're so spiritual, Bethel Church. <laughs> Jesus. That's what they say in second grade Sunday school. Jesus. Every question I ask my daughter, Jesus. Half the time she's right just saying that. Kind of more what I was getting at is like in this world. So it's the next service. I'll get that right. Like who here is the most important person that you know? Uh, because, you know, these, we, we sort of, we like knowing people that are in places of importance, political importance, you know, or maybe a sports figure or somebody like that. It's like, hey, I know this person. My mom's here in the front row. She, she shook George Bush's hand once. And from that moment on, she's reckoned they're like really good friends. Why? Because I know somebody who's important. I shook his hand once. We're like tight. We're close. I shook his hand. For the Christian, the most important person we know is Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Talk about having a friend in high places. If you're a Christian, you have the ultimate friend in the ultimate high place the highest place with the highest glory and the greatest access to God the Father. Now, let's acknowledge something. If you have a friend in high places, but he doesn't do anything for you, what good is it, right? You're like, that's a lame friend to have because he, he ain't doing nothing for me. Well, what is Jesus doing for us? Well, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is Jesus doing there? Is he just resting like, man, that whole redeeming of humanity, I'm exhausted. I'm going to just sort of chill here. Is he there? Is he resting in his laurels? Is he sort of soaking up the adulation of the seraphim and the cherubim? Just sort of like, hey, glad that's over. You know, like all you college students that got done with finals exam, like I'm just glad that's over. Is that what Jesus is doing in heaven? No. And I think it's important that we understand in our Christology that when we talk about the finished work of Jesus, it is not to insinuate that he is not still saving us. That he is not still actively working for our salvation. You say, wait a second, how is he doing that? It's this word interceding for us. What is, he, he's interceding on our behalf. Now you say, wait a second, now I'm getting confused because in verse 27 of Romans 8, it said that the Holy Spirit is the one who intercedes for us. Is it the Holy Spirit who is doing that or is it Jesus that, who is doing that? Question for you, would you rather have praying for you, who would you rather have praying for you, Billy Graham or D.L. Moody? You're like, I'd be good with either one of those, right? I feel good about either one of those. But the best option is what? Both of them. Both of them praying for you. And here we find this wonderful truth that, yes, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. He is part of that Trinitarian relationship, praying on behalf of God's people. But seated at the right hand of God, the Father, is God the Son. And he also is interceding for us. Think of it, friend. We have a human at the right hand of God. We have a human. If, you, if, you're, if you're into representational democracy, you got to love the fact that representing us at the right hand of God is not an angel, not just random spirit being. It's a human at the right hand of God. He is one of us, and he is the one who is in his high priestly role 
mediatorily advocating on our behalf. He is actively praying for us. And not just praying for us, but he is actively advocating to the Father on our behalf in ways that I'll get into here in a moment. Now this is in the category of ineffable to try to understand the mysteries of inter-Trinitarian divine communication. But what we can say is this, is that he is working to preserve our salvation by reminding the Father of his own death and resurrection for our justification. He reminds the Father in the words of Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how can I know that in the end I'm going to be saved? It's one of the top questions that I get as a pastor, people that are struggling with assurance of their salvation. How can I know that I'm saved? Or in this case, how can I know that in the end I'm going to be saved? And one of the ways that we can know that we're going to be saved is that we know that at the right hand of God is Jesus who is reminding the Father of his finished work on our behalf. He is actively continuing to labor and work for our salvation. Which, by the way, is not a hard sell to the Father because, behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that he would declare us children of God. It is not an enemy that we have in God the Father, but the ultimate lover of our souls. So how does Christ's intercession work? Well, maybe something like this. God the Father says, do you see the sin of Steve DeWitt down there? Jesus says, yeah, I do. The Father says, I'm grieved by that. Jesus says, me too. Father says, what should I do about it? Jesus says, do? Father, remember, he's one of your children. I already paid in full. The price for that sin. Don't you remember how the sky drew dark when I died? There's no condemnation for Steve. There's only love and life forever. That's what you promised. And that's what I accomplished. Jesus says, instead, let's do this. Let's work to rid him of this joy-stealing selfishness. What should we do? And the father says, I know. Let's send him some more cantankerous church members. <laughs> and apparently the father has answered that prayer over and over and over again. <laughs> so here, Christians, listen, here in one verse, we have everything that we know, need to know to be saved and everything to know confidently that we are going to stay saved. Death for our sin. Resurrection for our justification. Right hand for our representation. Intercession for our preservation. And every other need that we have in our life, there Christ interceding, pleading to the Father on our behalf. And I look at that list and I just think, what if, what if it was just one of the four? Like, let's just say it was merely that Jesus died for our sins. Or simply that he was raised for our justification. 
or simply that our Savior is at the right hand of God interceding for us. All he does is intercede for us. That's all that he does. If there was just one of those four, we should dance all day long with joy and gladness. And the future us in heaven would say to us now, the discouraged us, you know, the fearful us, the worrying us. There's a future us that would say to the present us, quit doing that. <laughs> Live with joy. You don't realize what is yet to come. But if there was just one of these things, I would say that we should just be the most joyful people that you'd ever meet because of any of these things. And yet you put all four of those things together, and what do you say? You say, like Paul, who shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Who? Nobody. Nobody. But that's the rest of the chapter, and we're going to do that in two weeks. Now, one little word of application. Because I know in our congregation, we have a whole bunch of what I'll call, you know, PTSD Christians. Okay? You grew up legalistic. Or you grew up perfectionistic. And now you're kind of searching for a, some kind of different version of Christianity that isn't laden with all of this guilt. Because one of the, what's the challenge of the perfectionist and the legalist, especially as they approach their Christianity? How do I know if I'm good enough? How do I know if I've done enough? Or as a, as a legalist, how do I know if I'm obeying not only all the laws that God made, but all the other man-made laws that I seem to also have to fulfill in order to be right with God? What if I missed one? What if I missed two? What if I missed 10? How am I doing on the curve? Where am I? Am I going to heaven? We got lots of people. And the fruit of that, then, is your conscience is perpetually telling you that you're guilty, that you're not enough. I have a friend that went to a particular college that shall go unnamed, in which there was tons of these rules that were raised up like biblical-level rules. And I remember him telling me, you know the thing, the problem with going to a school like that is that you get used to you get used to violating your conscience. It's incredibly difficult to get out of that if that has been your legacy, especially from childhood. What do we do in moments like that? We drag our rear end conscience to the gospel. I'll use the term again. I already did it once. But essentially, we appeal to Caesar. Take your conscience and appeal to Caesar. What do I mean by that? Live in Romans 8. Amen. Live in the truth. If God has declared me righteous, who can declare me unrighteous? Look in the mirror, friend, and say, I am somebody that God looks at as being righteous. And it doesn't matter what so-and-so and these people and all this stuff say, or even my internal conscience, which is not God, God declares me righteous. I am righteous in the eyes of God. Drag your rear end conscience to the gospel. Appeal to Caesar. And rest, rest in what Christ has done. Friend, do you believe that he died for your sins and was raised for your justification? Yes or no? Amen. Do you believe he ascended to the right hand and is there advocating to you for, uh, with the Father? 
Can you see in this that your salvation is as secure as God is God? Because if God says it, it's true. If he violates it, he's not God. You're as saved as God is God. Do you believe these things? Do you believe that Jesus is at the right hand in the highest possible place? Rest in him. Rest in his work. Quit resting in your work. Be confident in your status as a child of God. As the song says that we oftentimes sing, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of 